Hello everyone, I am William the Oxford Concierge and this is the first of my monthly podcast Ask William and Friends. If you have ever stayed in a top class hotel or wanted to then you may have noticed a discreet, almost invisible someone who makes sure that every random guest request is dealt with quickly and without any fuss. That's a concierge and I am that man, or at least I was for the last 15 years. I worked at one of the world's most iconic hotels, dealing with the rich and famous, the quirky and infamous. Many of those people became my friends. It is these people that will feature on my podcast. Candid conversations with some of the incredible humans I have met along the way. Think interesting friends talking about untold things, laughing at life and recounting stories. Thinkers and dreamers sharing their ideas and experiences in the industries which they live, breathe and love. You know, it's a lovely saying, it's always been my philosophy in life. It's nice to be important, and it's important to be nice. And if you always have that at the back of your mind, then everything then comes into proportion, including love. Mm-hmm. Love of, you know, of, you know, obviously romantic love. Love of people you work with. Love of the job you do. Mm-hmm. You know, love is the core of it all. And what's really sad is if you don't have love in your heart or anywhere, life is very, very bitter. Our very first podcast is all about love and it features a very special man, Mr Stuart Jarvis. Stuart was a patron of the arts known for his passion for theatre, cinema and entertainment. Stuart worked and played hard and he loved the industry that allowed him to mix with the great and the good. It was a joy for me to be able to spend a few hours with this lovely soul, who was also a very good friend. What makes it even more poignant is that Stuart was dying of the big C. He honoured us with his memories during the last few days of his life. Tell me how how you got into the love of theatre. Oh, goodness, that's a difficult one. Well, no, actually, now you've asked me the questions, it's not a difficult one. Because um, I was uh, up in university and I had a dear friend called Lee Clark, who was a cabaret artist, a typical 1980s cabaret artist. He could tap dance, he used to do innuendo with a big instrument. He was just outrageous. How I met him was, I was writing reviews for the Sunny Hole News. And in those days, there were lots of nightclubs. There was the New Cruster Club, Sunny Hole. There was a night out club, Birmingham. And I used to do these, I was, um, used to do these uh, interviews and go out and then if I liked somebody I'd go around and introduce myself and friendships just developed and I thought Lee was absolutely incredible uh, very very funny and uh, sadly only ever got on the telly once but what he did do was he set up an entertainment agency and he and I got into an entertainment agency right at the bottom of the barrel of it. You know, it was like bingo halls and uh, uh, clubs and stuff like that. So we were right at the the bottom of it. But saying that, it might have been the bottom of the the business, but it was the most lucrative part of the business. So if you're not proud, and I've never been proud, um, then you you were doing a good thing. Well, at that time, there wasn't... um, there wasn't an agency dealing with it. And Lee had got the real gift of the gab and he was a tough cookie. I mean, if nobody paid you, they'd paid you by the next day. I mean, you know, they knew the legs were going to get broken. But, uh, <laughs> he was he was a rough cookie. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, he said, right, love, 
Where's my money? Andy's. <laughs> oh, it's on the way. Yeah, I know it's on the way. Love, I'll be here tomorrow at 10 o'clock. And if it's not here, two broken legs for you. Bye. <laughs> and, you, and, and I said to Lee, you know, I mean, I could never have dreamt of saying that. But it worked. Uh, but he was so respected. What was that, your first memory of, of our meeting? Well, I think it must be at the Randolph. Because I adored the Randolph. I mean, I... My relationship with Randolph goes right back to 1977 and I just left university and um, I'd uh, been given the opportunity to be a film extra in a, a play called Brideshead Revisited and in those days money was no expense and the television company which was Granada then had hired the uh, the uh, Randolph for a week where all the film extras would go every morning in a coach and get dressed and all the principal actors would go and it was just incredible to, to see and that's where my love for the Randolph happened because I thought wow this is a special special place and it was it was ingrained in me that this special place should never be destroyed but we're talking about love, not hate. And love came straight into my life, to the Randolph. Well, but, but then I don't think you were a born boy then in 1977. <laughs> I don't think I, I was. don't think you were out of the cradle. I don't think I was a thought by then. No, I don't think you were thought of then. No, so no. there you go. Because well, you'd, uh, you'd been there, of, well, 40 years plus um, by, by the time we'd, we'd left there uh, a year ago in September. Mm. And obviously you'd, you'd met a lot of very interesting characters throughout your career. Um, with inside theatre, um, but obviously you sh we shared a love for for the wonderful general general manager, uh, Mr. Oh. Michael Grange. What if if there's uh, if there's ever a person that commanded love in a very discreet way, it's Michael Grange because he was such a lovely, lovely man. What inspired me about Michael was at the time I was managing the Phoenix and Michael was managing the right. Randolph. No comparison, I hasten to add, but <laughs> I'm not comparing the Phoenix to but we were managing. And I used to go to Brown's a lot for my breakfast. Mm. And lo and behold, I go down to Brown's and who should be sitting there enjoying his breakfast but Michael? And I said, Michael, you could be in, you know, at the Randolph. Oh, I much prefer it here. <laughs> this is where you get, so don't tell anyone. Yeah. Um, but then there he was. I remember st I stayed there Christmas Day because I was working at the cinema over Christmas or the theatre, I can't remember what. And I thought, well, I'm not going to, uh, I'm only shut Christmas Day. I spoil myself Christmas Day in the Randolph. Michael gave me a lovely rate because he was never full up over Christmas. And um, there I was, and Michael was carrying people's bags because he loved doing it. He loved the job. They brought them all with him. He was very old school. Old school. Old and you school. don't get managers in any area now like that. He had a love for the industry yeah. and his, his people. His people. Mm. He loved his employees. He respected them. 
They've they respected him. Almost definitely. But you know, it's. I think this is part of love as well. You remember your roots. Yeah. It's not that you don't, you know, you, you're going back or anything. You know, it's a lovely saying, and it's always been my philosophy in life. It's nice to be important, but it's important to be nice. And if you always have that at the back of your mind, then everything then comes into proportion, including love. Mm -hmm. Love of, you know, of, you know, obviously romantic love. Love of people you work with. Love of the job you do. Mm. You know, love is the core of it all. And what's really sad is if you don't have love in your heart or anywhere, life is very, very bitter. And it's so important to have it. And a dear friend of mine that came out of that relationship with Lee was this, a big 80s singer called Maggie Moon. And she was on things like Name That Tune and, oh, Maggie was a big, big star. And uh, in fact, she's been a dull situation I'm in at the minute. She she called me only a few weeks ago and we reminisced for a very long time. She's living down in Dorchester now. And uh, it was incredible. That, yeah, that, but you see, that's love. So that was obviously the, the starting at the bottom of the pile which was sounds to me it was a very fun experience to start yeah and then you went on to different things because you've well, also done a, a a little bit of producing as well i think i did lots of different things and some of them i i basically kept everything kind of quiet not because of the taxman you know the taxman can come knocking at my door tomorrow and <laughs> no, i'm not worried about mr taxman it's just that it's i i never like to sort of say what i was um you know doing i've been very unassuming man and some of the things were quite wonderful. They were like, I mean, I, I've always wanted to write my own book, not because I'm being conceited, but because I believe that if you're an ordinary person, good things can happen to you through love. When I was working with Lee, we got the contract with a big television series called Prisoner Cell Block Age. And the contract was that we looked after the Australian uh, girls, took them to gay clubs for personal appearances. And then we came back and the girls were touring in a, a play. So mm -hmm. we did that after the play. And, uh, but we had exclusive rights. And uh, you, you'd get into their car and there were riders. I mean, things called riders are in show business. If uh, you're looking after an artist, there's a, a condition to the contract, which is called a rider. And in the case of the Australian girls, in the car to take them to uh, to the, the club. club, there had to be like 48 tins of lager. <laughs> now, one night, one night, my dear, dear friend, Maggie Kirkpatrick, who I've been friends with for years, and she graciously mentioned me in her book, which I've never been mentioned in any book in my life. What she mentions is this, which I was flattered about, and I didn't know it meant so much to her because, and this was love again. She said, uh, you know, uh, this was all happening, and then she says, well, one one night, she said, no, one day I was stuck in, in the United Kingdom with these sort of arseholes of people who'd brought me over and hadn't, hadn't actually kept their contract, no, had no money, I had no one, and Lee, she mentions Lee, uh, all of a sudden brought this 
which is something I've never envisaged myself being. This knight in charming armour, galloping towards me like this, who booked me on two programmes of Celebrity Squares, you know, which was like £2,000, and booked me on this show and booked me on... My God, I had enough money to effing well fly first class back to Australia. She said I thought I was going to have to go on a horse or a coach or something. And it was so funny that she, you know, uh, really appreciated that. You see, all that... I mean, great love for Lee, great love for Maggie, and all these things which help solve problems just wouldn't have arisen without it. And it, it just comes along like, I won't say whiffs, because that sounds kind of rude, doesn't it? But, and I won't say wafts, but I'll say something like, you know, if you're wearing a Chanel number no. five or something, you know, it comes in a nice pleasant odour. And you think, oh, that's lovely. That's nice. That's nice. Over the years, I've been privileged to be able to make wonderful friends throughout what you've loved about doing theatre and things. Can you share with us one of your most favourite loving moments uh, with 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 one of your friends? Uh, well, I have a dear friend uh, <laughs> who's called Sue Nichols. She um, plays Audrey Roberts. And you know, this friendship started in 1969. And it happened because I was working for the Oxford Mail, freelance, and I was in love with Sue Nichols. I'd seen her on Crossroads. And I thought she talked like Marion Gates. I thought she'd got a Birmingham accent. No way. This is Lady Nichols. Very posh. And what this developed into was me at quite a young age going all over the country reviewing her for plays that weren't probably going to get published in the Oxford now because it wasn't coming to Oxford <laughs> but still paying a train fare and a theatre ticket myself to see her but what was funny was when she came to Oxford I'm waiting to see her to interview her and uh, after I went to the five o'clock performance up in the balcony uh, and I had to wait for her and uh I wait at the stage door and uh, in comes Sue and she goes hello darling how lovely to meet you and I just sat with my eyes open and my mouth open and said, that's not Marilyn Gates <laughs> and she said no I'm Sue Nichols she said I'm, I'm Lady Harmer Nichols you've got a title and I said well Sue I'm so gobsmacked but do you know what that's why I'm telling you this story it's too it's two-sided. Uh, Sue, I've got a file, I don't know how thick it is, of correspondence that Sue and, and I kept up from uh, 1969 69. to the present. Sadly, Mark, her husband, died this year. And um, we've kept up ever since. But my dad died way, way back in uh, a while ago. And when my dad died, Sue Nichols wrote to my dad every week and even put in sometimes correspondence from, from uh, that. And now, sadly, in my cancer days, she writes to me every week. Now, there's another strong example of love. Fantastic. 
where you are at now. Um, obviously, a lot has happened in the last 12 months from where you were and, and what's going on with you at, at this stage. You've obviously mentioned you are at the moment uh, suffering with cancer. Yeah, I, I, although I don't, I didn't like to dwell on the disease because cancer is a very strange disease and so many people suffer from it and so many people suffer from it from different ways and it can it, it reacts differently to different people and it can be extremely painful but with me what it brought out with love was how much people loved me i'll tell you a lovely little story about love it's a little story and it i must admit it made me cry thank god for you know getting emails because if it wasn't for emails, I wouldn't be able to Communicate. keep in touch. I don't cry a lot now. Yeah, I did cry. I did have tears at the start of it. I couldn't believe it, it was just happening to me. And then, but it wasn't for long. I toughened up fairly quickly to it. So did you accept it and embrace it? Yeah, I did, because I thought, it won't go if I cry. I'm going to make people not want to come and see me. Say, oh God, I'm going to see him again. Crying his eyes out, you know or morbid gym, so let's forget that. So I won't get any visitors, so, um, which I wanted. And I don't talk an awful lot about it when people come. So anyway, uh, this story is, is just quite beautiful for, for me. And that is, I live in a little village in Oxfordshire. Lovely little village. Lovely villages. Just quite beautiful, really. I'm very fortunate. And uh, last year, in the village next to me, which is called Steventon, I noticed they'd grown lots of daffodils along a very ancient causeway. And I thought, oh, that's beautiful. I'd love to do that in my village, along my lane. So I planted, I don't know if I was supposed to have permission. Sorry, parish council. Anyway, I planted some daffodils along my lane. They came out this year while I was sick. And I walked down with my walking stick and they looked lovely. Beautiful. They did, they looked beautiful. There's nothing nicer than a daffodil. No, and there isn't. Yeah. And you think of Wordsworth's <clears throat> poem, I wandered lonely as a clown. So I I, uh, I said to Joy, who's one of the parish councillors, no, was one of the parish councillors, I wrote to her, I said, do you think the parish councillors could enhance the, the daffodils this year so they're thicker? So I bought a hundred more and Joy and, uh, Joy and uh, four other councillors and they did it and they sent me a picture of them in their gardening gear saying, look what we've done today, Stuart. We've got another load of daffodils planted. She said, but guess what? So I thought, well, I'll write back, guess what? <laughs> Tell me what. She said, at the end of the lane, there's a bench and a tree. And we've asked the parish council to name that bench in your honour for all you've done for the parish council. Oh. The, the, wow. Uh, so when people come to the end of the daffodils, they say in memory of Stuart Jarvis. And maybe that goes back to my starting point about being an ordinary man. There's nothing wrong in being an ordinary man or an ordinary woman. 
if you achieve things that you know other people might not do because you've not given up you take the fight you know yeah, yeah. You, you do it so grab it with both hands grab it with both hands yeah certainly ask william and friends is sponsored by sun fun you mediterranean voyages i had the privilege of joining a sun fun you voyage in greece last summer and may i say it was epic so much so that I will be joining them again this year for a really special trip around the hidden Turkish islands. Roll on the sun, roll on the fun and me. We ate, we drank, we exercised with a certified trainer, we had the best private guide to take us on the historic sites and we played in the sea. In a nutshell, I was whisked off to the glorious Mediterranean to spend 10 days, 24-7 with a group of amazing people. Think Wellness Bootcamp meets an episode of Friends. I came back flushed and gushed and I can heartily recommend this experience to everyone listening. After coming back from the voyage and having this conversation with Stuart Jarvis, it really hit home as to how important it is to live our lives to the max and the importance of relationships. That really is one of the joys of being a concierge, is to help people live their lives to the best and seize every opportunity the day has to offer. I promise you that joining a Sun for New Voyage is something I can recommend to the most exclusive of my clients and it's something accessible to everyone. So for a really relaxing vacation a world away please visit sunfunnew.com and join them on a voyage next summer. I hope to see you there myself. You've always had a passion for what you believe in and as difficult as it was when, when the team at the hotel were, were being made redundant for the closure of the hotel. Mm. And I'll never forget this day as long as I live. You came for your final visit mm. to uh, the grand old lady, the grand old lady. I did, my grand old lady. And I, you know, you used to waddle through the reception area with your carrier bags full of different bits of pieces. Like which a bag woman. <laughs> like a bag woman. <laughs> And, uh, and we were in our last two weeks uh, before we were due to close and move on to new jobs. And you discovered that we were being made redundant. And uh, for us, we'd sort of digested it and we'd, we'd accepted it. But your passion for people and the ones that you loved with inside an organisation, you, you stood and took charge on behalf of all of the employees and you started fighting for their rights. And I remember you went into the restaurant of the Randolph and decided to tell everyone that was having a delicious meal, that we were getting shooed out of our jobs, that we've worked there for many years, mm. and that no one knew about it. Yeah. And, you know, it just goes to show that how determined you have been over the years, because, you know, the next day, with everyone's um, discretion of what was happening, you'd managed to get it on front page spread news. Is it wonderful words for you? It's like... This discretion, where it's like totally ignoring all the hard work people have done for years, that you're ignoring and you're not going to say anything about it, you're going to use discretion. Where are we in 2021 if we think that's acceptable? Where are we, you know, if we can't love our fellow man and support our fellow man and say this is wrong? But I think, you know, the love that you had for these people never went unnoticed. You know, you, you fought for them, you supported them, it gave them a, a lease of life and hope. It was remarkable, you know, because they were 
they were lost and they will never forget what you did for them and how it impacted I just time. hope, William, that in their new jobs, they rejoined the union. All right? I really do. And they've not been bullied into succumbing to the, what happened at the Randolph, because it's so easy to think, well, I, they mustn't. I'll be sure to speak to them. Yeah. yeah. Obviously, Randolph, again, Oxford in general, uh, being very well known for the series TV series of Morse. Lewis and Endeavour. Do you have any memories of, of times with Colin uh, in the in the Morse Bar or any uh, of the actors that were visiting? Around? I do. And so feel free them... to share. Oh. As long as it won't go any further than you and me, William. Okay. <laughs> One of them is uh, with uh, giving Colin, he loved the cinema. Colin Dexter, the writer of Morse. Oh yeah, Colin Dexter used to come to the cinema regularly. I used to give him a free pass because he loved films. And uh, he used to come down, uh, often with a copy of his book, autographed for me and give it to me. And one of the things we haven't mentioned is I used to be a teacher as well. And his grandson was studying at a school in Whitney and he used to sometimes send it by to me he wasn't a friend, but he was an acquaintance, and a very, very, oh, I was very flattered to have him as an acquaintance. But then, of course, there was a contract with all the television companies in London for when they were filming Endeavour, or Morse, or all the other, you know, marvellous dramas that were done there, uh, that the actors would stay at the hotel. Well, often I'd be... Uh, at the hotel anyway and they would be social I mean the great thing about the Randolph which people abroad probably don't know is there was a, a like a photographic gallery of all the famous people that had stayed at the at the hotel oh, signed that. photographs mm -hmm. and uh, that was a lovely thing to behold so looking back can you talk to me about what you have loved most about your life Stuart well, I loved it being jack of all trades and master of none. Because, as I look back, I've got very few skills. I wouldn't say I talk a lot of bull, but I've got very few skills. I can hold an audience. And, you know, when I bought my own cinema, which was my, looking back, which is my biggest, biggest achievement of my life, I always wanted my own cinema and I thought I'll never get my own cinema. And I bought a cinema in Abingdon, which is near Oxford. Uh, it was a 13, it was built in uh, the 1300s. It was needing repair. Everybody that said, Will you buy what? And I said, the Regal Abingdon. They said, it's falling down. I said, I know, but I love it. And I'll just try and prop it up and uh, <laughs> I'd see what happens. It eventually got propped up so it could be sold for re redevelopment. But we kept it going because we did like bingo, we did uh, ladies nights, we did, uh, you know... Uh, dancing. Yeah, we did. we did. Well, it was more like student nights, you know, yeah, we yeah. did dancing. And uh, we kept it going for quite a while and then eventually they said, you know, 
can't renew your licenses because the asbestos has just fallen down from the ceiling. <laughs> you know, you can't have a cinema <clears throat> with a blue asbestos. Well, we had to close and uh, we did close then. How long did you run that for? Oh, quite a while. Mm. It was a one screener and, you know, to run a one screener is like a death nail. You, that was in the 1980s and, you know, you can't run it now. You, you, you just have to have as many screens as you can. But what that did lead to for me was then I went to uh, B Picture House. Uh, there's a very small arts cinema chain in the United Kingdom called Picture House. And I was their first manager ever. And I think I was appointed in 1988. And they used me to train other managers, which was a very honourable thing for to give me because I was, I was getting on then, I was no chicken. And, um, you know, the whole thing of our business is, oh, you've got to be young, you've got to be young, you know, you're gonna, you're gonna, you can't be any good if you're old and you've got horns. <laughs> Can I just correct myself there? Because I've just had a senior moment. I you all know everybody, wherever you are, cinemas weren't around in 1300. <laughs> and in fact, it was 1936 that my cinema was built. So. Very, very sorry if anybody's out there with a calculator and saying, this man is a maddo. Why are they listening to him? So sorry. Thank you for confirming that, Stuart. No electric. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness gracious. Oh, but well, going back to, to that, there's another thing of, oh, I could talk all day about that. I'm sure it's on an all day board podcast. But... When I went to sit a uh, picture house, there was a lad that used to come into the cinema virtually every day. He adored films, I could see that. Now, in those days, I didn't have to employ people with contracts. I said to him one day, you like the cinema, don't you? He said, oh, I do love the cinema. Oh, I do love the cinema, he said. I said, how do you feel coming in, uh, you know, when you're not at your lectures and just tearing the tickets and then going and watching it? And I won't pay you. Oh, you can come in? He said, oh, I would like that very much. He said, thank you, Mr. Jarvis. So I said, oh, you're welcome. So he came in and uh, I could realise he just adored it. Well, the company was starting to expand and I, at this point I was having to look after Oxford. And for those of you that like hearing about the United Kingdom, Stratford-upon-Avon, which of course is a lovely place to be. And we were opening this cinema in Stratford-upon-Avon. So I said to Alistair, would you like to manage it with me? He said, would I? Well, he did. Managed it very well. And, to cut a long story short, Alistair became operations manager of Picture House Cinemas. From tearing tickets. It just shows you this all links in all the time with love because if you know I haven't had love with these people for that and done things with these people which they're not physical love they're friendship love exactly. or but it's love mm. then these things would not not have happened in my life and I suppose it's so important that you surround yourself with people of love yeah. positive people yeah. who make a difference to each other and not have anybody. You know, my, uh, eld my oldest friendship is 1977. And when we, when we go to the funeral, you know, my oldest is 1977. And what I've done is I've 
blocked friends from certain areas like the Phoenix, the Randolph, all of, all of different time spans, and um, but not one bit of hate, not one person that's really been shouted or been nasty or mm. we've had a bad word said. And I'm no saint. I mean, I'm not had an argument with a member of staff and asked them to do something. That, I mean, that'd be a lie. But it's how you say it and how you do it. And now you just pick it up again and just carry on. That's how you deal with it. Yeah. Okay. So what would you like to say to the people that you love in your life? Well, just very, thank you, very much a thank you. Yeah. And you know, that's the one good thing. The one good thing about this disease, and maybe it is just the one good thing, that you have this time to reflect on it and realise that you have this time where you realise people are uh, value you value you in so much mm -hmm. uh, which you don't pick up on. Mm -hmm. It's much I mean God forbid having a heart attack or a stroke or anything as terrible as that because it's usually sudden mm. and this isn't and uh, but it is so time consuming and it's tiring. so long and it's tiring. I know. I know. Did you enjoy the, uh, the, did you manage to read the article from last month's? I uh, did. Uh, and you look so posh and elegant. Is that your house? <laughs> no, it was the Bridge of Sighs. Oh, oh no, that's the manor, the manor at Weston on the Green, the new, yeah. the new hotel. So I said to myself, where's William getting all his money from? I mean, there was this luxurious, Room and I'm thinking, yes, and you know you've got very expensive socks and <laughs> shoes, and I'm thinking, where is this coming from? You know, concierge life. I know. There's always Give a perk to subject. Give and take. I know. Give no, and but take. seriously, mm. very well groomed. Mm. Not like the bad lady sitting opposite you at the minute to come in with her carry bags. I've always taken pride yeah. in my appearance. You have. You know, you must start as you mean to go on. No, you haven't. That, that was that's been so important in your work anyway because mm. you've given a flamboyant this. concierge no i know i wouldn't say it's flamboyant i think at certain times it probably was. well maybe it was but it was more of a case of that you you know you know this is what you're doing you're people feed me. our souls and yeah. it's been the case for your industry my industry you know without people what what we're here for you know what legacy would you like to leave Stuart, if you could or advice for those you love well do you know what i'd like to have happen Tell me. <laughs> it's been on my mind for years. I want my tombstone to be a cinema screen and to say, the end, Stuart Jarvis. Directed by Stuart Jarvis? Yeah. I think we can That's do that. That's all I want. I think we can do that. I would just love that because it's quirky and it's, I've never seen a gravestone with the end on it. And I really would like that because my life's been more involved in, although we talked about theatre, we have talked about cinema. I mean, I, 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 don't, I don't think we've got enough time, but I could tell you some funny stories about cinemas. You tell us whatever you want. Well, I'll tell you one. Abingdon was in quite, the cinema was in quite um, a progressive spot, you know, where people would speak their mind. This week we had Rocky on. And you've got to remember, I was running on a shoestring. Now, if I didn't make money, I was going to be shut. I mean, I had to be realistic. 
And ne- I should write written a book about projectionists because they're an art in themselves. They've all gone now, bless them. This one was called Gus, and I was in the office counting the money at the end of the day, and Gus goes, Stuart, Stuart. I said, what is it, Gus? What is it? Stuart, we got a big problem, Stuart. I said, what? What is it? He said, come in here, come in here. So go all the way up the stairs to the box. I mean, all more mighty places to get to. He said, look, there. And I looked at what he was pointing at. And the uh, film was coming to an end and it was snapped. I said, what are we going to do? Because I wasn't a projectionist. He said, well, all we can do, he said, is just let it go dark on the screen. You go down. You say to all the patrons, you're very sorry. The film will be about 15 minutes getting repaired. I'll do it with splicer tape. He said, and then we'll be back on the screen. I said, you know what's going to happen to me, don't you? (laughs) He said, yeah, but you're the manager. He said, you get paid more than any of us. He said, and you're going to get a load of things thrown at you, aren't you? (laughs) I said, yes. And you know what they're going to be, Gus? He said, yes, they're going to be tin cans, popcorn cartons, beer or things. He said, but it's worth thinking because I can't do anything. So I said, all right then. Remember, this is a big cinema. It's quite a walk to go from the back of the cinema to the front with a huge screen. It's the biggest in the country at the time. So I go down to the front of the screen to jeers and everything. Boo, you know, all this business. I said, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Get off. Because it was just before the fight. And that's what we come and see is the fight, you know. Get off. We want to see the fight. Get off. I said, well, there's a little bit of a problem there. I said, the film snapped in a place where I said, we need to repair it. So it would take us about 15 minutes or so. But I said, there's some good news. If you're a manager, you, you know that. You're giving good news enough time. I said, as a special treat, as you know, we close the kiosk once the film starts. But I said, I've kept it open. I said, if you want to buy some popcorn or some Coca-Cola or... Yeah. feel free to go down so they all to my surprise they all rushed out so I thought Christ I ain't got no staff so I rushed out myself so <laughs> I didn't think they'd all rush out so I sold £200 worth of confectionery and I'm counting it up and I'm thinking why don't I just tell Gus to stop the film Every the whole time. week at that time, because I, I gross, you know, what will I gross? I can't remember. A lot of money. I wouldn't have grossed. So I said to Gus, would you do that for me? He said, that's not right. He said, that's not ethical. I said, you shouldn't do things like that. I said, well, it mean I can pay you off the books and not put you through the tax this week. I'll do it then. He said. <laughs> there was his ethics right out, out the, the window. window. But it was interesting that Little things like that happened, and um, they did save us because it was a popular film, clearly, but it, it saved us because we were just on a shoestring. And I only did it because I loved the cinema. Nobody in their you right mind. You wanted it to survive. Yeah, nobody in their right mind. I was working for nothing some weeks. I mean, some weeks I had four people in there. Mm. I suppose, you know, the, the, the 
things that I need to say to you are, you know, thank you so much for always being so supportive and vice versa. It's been so lovely having you in my life over these years, along with people from Randolph days, um, sharing wonderful experiences, laughing, joking. Well, I'm only sad that you've interviewed me at the end of my journey because, you know, I'm clearly slurring my words because of medication. And I know I'm not the person I was. Uh, I know that. But I thank you for asking me because it was a, it was a, an honour because when you get to this point, sadly, you're out to roost and, um, you know, people will just forget you, mm. which is natural. Um, but I, uh, I was honoured honored for you to ask me. And I just hope were able to salvage something from this that is okay and it's the legacy of Stuart Jarvis that Uh is what it is you know and I I think for people to be able to uh, listen to this and understand a small part of what you've done who you are and and thing I I think it's a, a very privileged thing that they can they can listen to it and I'm forever grateful as are everyone that you've done through through the years so um is there any Just final words. Yes. I love, I love Dusty Springfield's song, All I See Is You. I love, I love the words. I won a talent show in South Sea two years ago singing All I See Is You. I think the words are quite beautiful. It was written by an old friend, sadly, who's died, Alan Wexter. I don't know why it didn't become number one. I don't know why somebody hasn't really released it. I don't know why somebody hasn't recorded it again. So anybody out there in America who wants to get a hit record, get this record recorded because it will be a hit. Modernise it up a bit. It's a bit old-fashioned, but it'll be a hit because it's beautiful. Are we having it at the funeral? I hope you're going to play at the funeral for me. I will do. Yeah, because all all in the background. You're in charge of that, William. So if it's not played, it's your fault. (laughs) Oh, fantastic. Well, Stuart, it's always a pleasure spending time with you. It's always a pleasure with you, because you're a dear, dear friend. I love you dearly. And I'm glad you are paths crossed. And thank you for letting me be part of it. And all those upgrades. Thank you. (laughs) Oh, you're welcome. You're a star. You're welcome. You are a star. We hope you enjoyed this conversation with Stuart. Keep listening for memories and tributes from just a few of his many loved ones. Hello, Dave Woodick here. I greatly admired Stuart, but there was a lot I didn't know about him. What I do know is that he was a man of high principle, strong values, and great integrity. I saw him as a champion of our community here in Milton, a community that might well have been badly compromised without Stuart's close engagement and timely interventions. So his passing is a sad loss, but his was a life well lived. Hi, it's Zena Hoskins. I had a little piece for you. Stuart was a parish councillor for a while. He worked for the good of the parishioners, always having their best interests at heart. That heart was a big one. He did small kindnesses, such as having daffodils planted along the lane to brighten people's lives. The world would be a better place if there were more people like Stuart. He was a kind and gentle man and will be missed by those who knew him. This is Sarah and Simon Keogh. Friendship should not be qualified by the length of it, 
but by the quality of it. Our friendship with Stuart was short, cut too short, but rich in quality. We only really got to know him in the last few months of his life, when we offered to help him campaign in the local elections, and thus began a short but lovely friendship, with him reaching out to us when we were hit by a family illness, and then us reaching out to him as his life ebbed away. Our last memory of him is sitting at his bedside as he regaled us with wonderful tales of his fascinating life, peppered with tears and laughter. He told us he'd had a wonderful life and he didn't regret any of it. The greatest sadness for us is that he was such a brief light in our lives. He will be greatly missed. We have been blessed by knowing Stuart, a true gentleman with a brilliant sense of humour. Stuart never forgot birthdays or special days and always showed his appreciation of gifts. We will miss Stuart and his bold and beautiful handwriting. God bless and rest in peace. Anne, Mick and family. Stuart was a great parish councillor. He always made a meeting come to life, especially talking about his concerns, which were not on the agenda. I admired his tenacity as everyone would eventually come round to Stuart's way of thinking. He was amazing. This is a tribute to my dear friend Stuart Jarvis from Michelle Orson, who has known him for approximately 40 years. There could never be a better friend than Stuart. He was kind, generous and extremely funny. When I first knew Stuart, my late husband was alive, but unfortunately rather ill, and Stuart knew we were both down. So one morning, when I opened the curtains at approximately 6.30 in the morning, Stuart had decorated my whole car with bananas and hung across the gateposts a huge inflatable banana, as this particular thing was a bit of an in-joke at St. Alphage at that time. Then, of course, there was the time when he invited me after the theatre to a meal at the Randolph. I'd gone up to get changed in his room and he presented me with a pair of quite outrageous Dame Edna glasses. I'd like you to wear these during our dinner tonight, he said. Well, anyone who knows the Randolph will know at that time it was quite a formal dining area. But not wanting to disappoint Stuart, I wore them. And we both sat very seriously, mostly with straight faces, eating our rather superb dinner with me wearing my Dame Edna glasses. Afterwards, he sent a photo of it embellished onto a beautiful mug and a cushion cover. Stuart not only was funny, but he was the most generous friend anyone could ever wish for. Knowing I had never visited Guernsey, he once sent me flights, so that I could travel to Guernsey, meet him, where he hired a car and took me on a personalised journey around the island, showing me all of the landmarks he knew from his past, including the cafe that he had once owned. Such a thoughtful, kind and generous man. He will be missed by many forever. This is a message from Maggie Moon. I was deeply touched by Stuart's desire to include me 
in his last farewell to this world. I told him to stay strong, be optimistic, pray for a miracle. He was a great supporter of me and my singing career, but I thought of him more as a friend than anything else. We lost touch for a while, but it was magical to finally get back in contact a few years ago. My biggest sadness is that we didn't get to see each other before he died. I'm sure we'd have had so many memories to share. Stuart was always cheerful, with a wicked sense of humour, but above all, he was one of the kindest people I've ever met. I admire how bravely he faced the end, even arranging his own funeral to the finest detail. I will always remember him with love. He was a one-off, with so many wonderful qualities, and he will be sadly missed by all who knew him, and especially Miss Winnie, who was the luckiest dog to have ever had such a loving home. God bless you, Stuart, and may you rest in peace. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to our first ever Ask William and Friends podcast. I hope you liked it as much as I enjoyed making it. Please do let me know your thoughts, subscribe to our series and look us up and hook us up by sharing with friends, families and loved ones. Our next issue will be really special. It's a tribute to women as part of the International Women's Day celebrations and I would be thrilled to think you will be here listening along. Find us at wherever you get your podcasts and have a great day.